If you have your Bibles, please open it to Ezra chapter 7. I was contemplating whether or not to troll Alex by having him read the first five verses, which is a list of names and genealogies. But I thought I'll be nice to him. So before I start, I want to just open our time in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for your word and giving it to us to know you more so we can be conformed to your son. Lord, allow us to be men and women who are devoted to studying, to practice, and to live out your word. Lord, be with us this evening as we are exhausted from the week that you give be with us in a special way to be able to learn and be attentive to your word. Lord, be with me. Allow me to speak the message that you have in store for us in hopes that we can glorify you in all that we do. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. One of the greatest joys of being able to teach here in one of our Sunday school classes. <clears throat> I'm teaching church history class, as some of you know. And one of the greatest joys is that we get to study on how the Lord has raised up different people to finish the race. If you ever wonder how people like Martin Luther can be so bold in going up against the Roman Catholic Church by nailing the 95 Theses in front of the Wittenberg Chapel, it's not because he's inherently brave or he hates the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, but it's because of one reason, that is he is devoted to God. If you look at the life of Charles Spurgeon, who was willing to stand up against all of the theological liberals in London all by himself, which drained him to the point where it costed him his life, the reason why he did all of that, the reason why he stood up against some of his friends that leaned towards the theological doctrine, it's not because he loves to debate, but it's because he is devoted to God. And this is a common thread of all famous Christians. When we look at these Christian bios, the common thread for all of them is that they are devoted to God. It made me wonder if you, if someone was to write a biography about you <laughs> this evening, or not this evening, but if someone was to write a, a, a biography about you or a little thing on your tombstone, what would they say? Is this something that you want to be known as, here lies so-and-so, fashionable. Here lies so-and-so, tech genius. Here lies so-and-so, gamer. If, you, if, if those close to you were to remember you by one thing, what would it be? And I hope that for all of us as Christians, that if there was like a field, if there was like a graveyard and all of us were, were in this grave together, that the tombstone would write our names and all of us have this one phrase, devoted to God. So-and-so, devoted to God. The question is, how can I be such a person? And Ezra here gives us an example of a person that is devoted to the Lord. A little more background about this text. This is a book in the post-exilic time. What this means is that this was during a time when the Israelites were brought back to the land by the Persians after being removed by the Babylonians. Israel, during the entire time of the Old Testament, failed to obey God. God made a covenant with them. He said that if you obey me, if you are faithful to me, you get to keep this land. But if you, if you fail to believe me, if you turn your hearts to other gods, God will remove them from the promised land. In fact, the Israelites, at the end of 2 Kings and at the end of 2 Chronicles, you see that these Israelites became more corrupted than the pagans that they removed in that first generation. 
Josh, in the book of Joshua, the first several chapters was about this, this campaign of removing those pagans from that land. God gave them victory because these people sinned greatly against the Lord, and each and every single one of the nations fell. But yet at the end, at the very <coughs> end of the book of Second Chronicles and Second Kings, the people of Israel became just as corrupted as those original pagans. Every single king failed, and every single king was worse than the last. So when we get to this book, this part of the Bible, we see Ezra. And this is someone that is unique because he, he lives for God. This name Ezra is shortened form of the name Ezariah, which means God has helped Ezra, some that by the, by the help of God was able to be used by God because Ezra's devotion to God's law and the totality of his word. Ezra is a unique figure in the entire Old Testament. He actually gives us a template of someone who is devoted to him. He is a unique and exceptional person in the Old Testament. He is one of those Old Testament heroes that stand out. Earlier this week, Roger, Tony, and myself were standing in that corner, and we were talking about these Old Testament saints. And we, one of the things I, I, we were talking about was, like, you know, if you look at the New Testament qualification of, of elders and deacons, you realize that the, 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 the big names don't qualify. David does not qualify to be an elder, if he was here, an elder SFBC. Solomon does not qualify to be a deacon of the church. Samson doesn't qualify to be someone that, is, that you would model as a elder. But yet there are some exceptions. Ezra is one of those exceptions. If Ezra was here today, he would qualify to be an elder of this church. Even the Jews today, non-believing Jews, see Ezra as something that's a, a special historical figure. He's known as the second Moses. Ezra was someone that knew the Bible well. It is said that he has memorized most of the Torah what made him unique was he's able to memorize and recall from memory things of the Old Testament. This is why even today some of the Jews view Ezra with such high regard because of his devotion in memorizing, applying, and teaching God's word. He was a powerful man and an important figure in the post-exilic time. You notice in the first five verses, there's these list of names. He's different because most of the people at this post-exilic time, they only gave them one description of their fathers. They'll say, Haggai, son of so-and-so, or his father is this person. Zerubbabel, his father is this person. But for Ezra, he has this long line of people. And I'll explain a little bit more what, why that's significant in a second. But this list of names is significant. This, it's supposed to highlight that this person was important he stands out from the rest. And what made him so great is his devotion to the Lord. You can summarize his entire life in this verse. Ezra chapter 7, a little bit more context here. Ezra chapter 6 and 7, in between that time, it was about 50 years, and that's when the book of Esther happened. In, ch- in chapter 7, this is actually the first time we see Ezra. He, this book is named after him, but the first time we actually see him appear is in this chapter. You'll notice that in this chapter, the phrase, the hand of the Lord was upon him. You see that in verse 6, the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. You see it <coughs> again in verse 9 and in verse 28 to describe Ezra. And in, in Ezra chapter 8, he does it describes him again that the good hand of God was upon him. And this idiom should be familiar to us. 
This means that God is using Ezra and he's honoring him and blessing him for his faithfulness. Ezra had the hand of God upon him because Ezra was devoted to God. Now let me ask you this question. Are you devoted to God? Are you someone that's defined by your love, devotion, and dedication to God? Or are you defined by something else? The Bible is not just a book that defines what you need to be, but you're also defined by how well you know the Bible. How well you handle the Bible defines who you are. You can tell how how a person is and how they navigate their life with God's word. How you think through world issues while using God's word tell me more about who you are. It tells me more about your profession, your education, your hobby, your, tech, your technology, your social status, whatever it is. It, it tells me, what it tells me most about you is how well you know God's word. Now, oftentimes we hear people that talk about how they want to grow in the knowledge of God, how they have, want to have a greater, greater dedication to fight sin this year or to memorize scripture or do any type of spiritual discipline only for a short time later, you realize that that's just all lip service. It's the Christian answer, right? If I asked you, do you devote your life to the Lord? You will say yes, because that's an easy thing to say. But you have to ask yourself, is there a real commitment in your heart to follow and be the child of God that God wants you to be? Does God and his word truly matter to you? You see this in the life of Ezra. If you want to be a person that's devoted to God's word, let's look to Ezra as an example, as a template for us to see what faithful devotion to the Lord looks like. I want you to look at this list and see if this list defines you. How do you know if you are truly devoted to God? Here are three indicators. Three indicators from the life of Ezra that will show you you truly are following the Lord. Put it another way, if you want to be devoted to God, these are the three things you must be. Three things, three ways for you to work on if you want to be devoted to the Lord. Now I'm going to list these three, and I want you to understand that it's not, these three things are not only that they have to work at the same time, but they have to work in a certain order. You can't miss one. It has to be in a specific order. The first one is the devotion to studying God's word. Second is devotion to applying God's word. And third is devotion in teaching God's word. It has to be this order. So if you want to be devoted to God's word, the very, the very, if you want to be devoted to God, the first sign that you are devoted to God is that you have a devotion to God's word. Look at the beginning of verse 10. For Ezra has set his heart to study <coughs> the law of the Lord. You'll notice in the beginning of this verse, Ezra is known as someone that set his heart to study. This phrase here, set his heart, is the idea of firmly resolved or to, in, or to put intent in. Is the person that's anchored by the word of God. Ezra's affection is, grounding, is grounded in wanting to know more about God's word. It's a, it put another way, he had a great love that is evident by his dedication in studying God's word. On the day of my wedding, I was with a bunch of my groomsmen, and we stayed in a hotel together. And it just so happened on that day, there was a Raiders game. And one of my groomsmen, we'll call him Mike, because his name is Mike. And he, and he, woke, up in the, he woke me up in the morning because he was screaming uh, on the top of his lungs when the Raiders scored. And he was booing at the TV when the Raiders like, lost the point or when they failed. 
He was screaming and yelling. He was cheering. He wept when the Raiders wept, and he rejoiced when the Raiders rejoiced. And what does it tell you about this groomsman? That his heart was set onto the Oakland Raiders. The Oakland Raiders weren't even playing in Oakland. They were playing in some other place, but his heart was drawn to it. He, was, he, was, he felt as if, you can feel that as if he was there. Now I can ask you the same thing. What is your heart set on? What excites you most when you have free time? What moves you? You can tell much about a person by what he loves and how much he devotes time to it. Notice that Ezra was inclined towards, he was inclined towards studying and knowing God. Ezra set his heart in knowing God's word. His heart was gravitated to study scripture. This is what his heart was devoted to. And evidence that you are devoted to God is by studying his word. You cannot expect to be someone that is devoted to fighting sin if you're not devoted to studying God's word. You cannot expect to be someone that's living upright with integrity if you're not devoted to the word of God. Please don't use your time pursuing things that have no eternal significance. And again, I'm not saying you can't have hobbies. <clears throat> I'm not saying that you can't have these things. I am saying that what should most define you is your knowledge of God. Recently, I, have to, I, was, I was going through my computer, my phone. I'm like deleting different things to make space because the bulk of my laptop and my phone are pictures of my wife and my daughter. And you were seeing all these family pictures. Like, oh, she's so cute. Take pictures. And we'll take pictures together. So I have to start removing different things. And what's really cool about the, the iPhone and the MacBook, they can actually tell you like, in like a long line like how everything's split up. Like you have this amount for, for documents, this amount for pictures, and this amount for music and, all, and, and so forth. And as I thought about that, I think about, well, what is it, if we were to look in our own lives, if we were to somehow, if you were to put our own mind into a screen and see what occupies our mind, what would fill it the most? It would be about pop culture, video games, diet, fashion, celebrities, media. What about God's word? Will God's word be equal in volume to the rest or be more or less? What you know, what you know most about shows you what you love most. What occupies your mind the most in terms of volume reveals what's in your own heart, what you love the most. In this book, Ezra is known as someone that's skilled in the law. In verse 6, he's known as a scribe skilled in the law, <clears throat> skilled in law of Moses. <clears throat> Ezra is not just someone who had a general understanding of, or, or knowledge of God's word. No, rather, he's devoted to studying, and he knows God's word fully. He was skilled in governing the nation of Israel because he knew God's word. Later on in verse 11, you'll notice that he's known as a scribe. He's learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord. He learned God's word. It didn't come naturally for him. And it's easy for us to think, oh, he's a Bible figure. Of course it's easy for him. He somehow automatically knew all of God's word. No, that's not the case. He spent time to study and he learned all of God's commandments. This is not the case for him. He had to take time to memorize the entire Torah. He made himself know God's word. Ezra will eventually be a guy that started the school of scribes who were also devoted in memorizing and teaching God's word the way Ezra was. It was said that if you were to roll up a scroll and pierce a needle through it, this group of people will be able to tell you exactly which of the words that that needle pierced through. And then when I heard about that, I was like, man, that is, that, that's unbelievable, man. 
And then one day at Grace Church, when I was working there, that didn't change my mind because there were these two elders that were talking about baseball. And they weren't just talking about baseball like, oh, did you watch yesterday's game? No, they were, t- they were comparing the, the, the game from the night before to some game 20 years ago. They're talking about different days. Like, oh, yeah, this, this thing that they did in the fourth inning is parallel to the one that they did 20 years ago when the wind was like this and there's different people playing in the field the, the, and then they threw the ball like this and then it hit home. It was like, it was nuts. I heard all of that and I thought to myself, what a waste of mental space. But at the same time, you realize that when you think about these things, it's, it requires a desire to learn. It's actually possible. If you can memorize all these little details about baseball, then what about God's word? Ezra was not someone that used his mind to devote to things that were trivial or temporal. He spent his life learning and learning and learning about God's word to the point where he is known, again, as the second Moses. He knew God's word so well that he is considered one of the greatest Old Testament figures. How can someone like this devote himself to God's word is because he cherished the beauty of his God. And for us, in order for us to be devoted to God's word this way, we too must be devoted to the Lord. We must see Christ and his beauty, and we must be drawn to it. And the more we study God's word, the more beautiful Christ should be in our eyes. And oftentimes, we may be able to do this for a week or so, and that desire dies out. <laughs> We must be people that are constantly looking to Christ to remind yourself of the gospel daily and to study God's word so that the gospel will become more beautiful to us. The more God is attractive to you, the more you will spend time with God. It's a war for our affections. What you love most, that is what you'll spend the most time on. That's what you'll spend most time learning about. Not only was Ezra a man that was devoted in studying God's word, but Ezra was a man that lived out what he learned, which gets to our second point. If you want to be known as someone that's devoted to the Lord, you must apply God's word in your life. Our second point is you must have a devotion to applying God's word. Notice this middle part of verse 10, that Ezra is known to practice it, that he, he, he studied the law of the Lord and to practice it. Ezra is someone that practiced God's law. He practiced God's word. Ezra knew God's word, and he lived out what he learned. Ezra devoted his life to live a life of holiness. God's word must change you. It doesn't matter if you have Reformed theology if your life is not Reformed. It doesn't matter if you know what tulip means if your life is not a fragrance to the Lord. What does it matter if you understand all of the heavy doctrines of Scripture and those doctrines are not weighing down your soul to obey God? Again, I'm not saying that you have to memorize all the doctrines, know everything before you apply. But what I am saying is that what you do know about God's Word, you must apply. You should apply the things that you already know. You should strive to be obedient to the sermons that you hear or to the lessons you learn in your flock group. Or, or to apply those, those principles in those Christian life books or the words you read in Scripture. You need to devote your life to practicing God's Word. Devotion is evident in action. The Christian life is a struggle for obedience, and you must override your mind from your sinful thoughts to hearing and obeying the Word of God. You need to saturate your mind with God's Word so that you can live out God's Word. 
God's word changes your thoughts and your action. And Ezra is marked by his holiness and purity. Throughout this book and the book of Nehemiah, he goes around confronting people of their sin because he lived out God's word. He had credibility to the things that he was saying. A year ago during an elders meeting, uh, one of our elders brought up um, this moral failure of a pastor. And as he was describing this pastor, it came to my attention to actually know this guy. I served with him once at Grace Church. And then as I was thinking through that first pastor, Roger brought up another pastor. This second pastor was this famous pastor that preached at the Shepherds Conference. And remember when I found out about the second pastor, I went back to my notebook and I, and I went back to that, that, that page in my notebook that had all the notes from his session. And do you know what his topic was on? Sanctification. I reread some of the stuff that he was saying, and he would talk about how we need to be a holy church of the Lord to build us up. There were things that were, were like nuggets of gold. He would say things like, Christ sanctified the church through his blood so that you need to be sanctified for Christ. And as I heard the news and I read the notes, though, although those things were true, it was hard for me to take him seriously for the Christian you cannot expect people to take you seriously if you live a life of hypocrisy. If you ever wonder why your evangelism is not effective, sometimes it's because you live like the world. You may think other people will look at your life and say, why do I need to give up my life for Christ when you're living just like me? Why would I need to count the cost of following Christ when you haven't counted the cost yourself? You need to be distinct in order for you to be distinct from the world. You must be devoted to applying God's word in your life. This is also, this also is, is in terms of the church. You know, if you're in the church and someone is confronting you on your sin, it's hard to take them seriously if they're living in that sin as well. If someone has, is struggling with anger, he's telling you to not be angry, you're like, okay, you need to work on the, take out the log in your own eye, friend. If you're going to confront others about their Bible reading, you better make sure you're committed to, to your own Bible reading plan. Whatever it may be, if you apply God's word faithfully in your own life, you'll be able to remove the log that's out of your own, lot, out of your own eye. A person that's devoted and living out God's word will be appalled by sin that's all around you. You must live and want others to live out God's word. Ezra was able to do this because he walked the walk and he walked the talk. Is God's word sharp enough in your life to cut out the sin and shape you to be more like Christ? When I was young, my brother and I had these little toy lightsabers. You know what I'm talking about, the ones that kind of like, like stretch out and you kind of put it back in together? Uh, my brother and I got, had these two lightsabers. It was like, we're like, you're practicing, doing all these different choreographies. And then we were so good at our little choreography that we, we turned off the lights and turned on the lightsabers. We were doing all these like acrobatics and moves to each other. And at one point, we like, at the end of our choreography, we're supposed to stab each other, and then we like fall to the ground and like moan, and then like, oh, the Sith wins, or whatever. You know, we're trying to like reenact stuff in Star Wars. And obviously, this lightsaber is not like a real laser sword. I mean, it's evident by the fact that it's, it's you know, it's not, it's, it's like a blunt little object. And also by the fact that not, you know, moments after my mom would say, tell us like, get off the ground, it's dinner time, get, we gotta go eat now. These things, these little toy figures, are not supposed to have any lasting impact in our life. You know, I think some of you view God's word the same way. 
you view God's word as even though you have it, it's, it's not real to you. It doesn't pierce your heart. It doesn't move you. At best, it's like those toy lightsabers. Maybe it'll bruise you, but it will have no lasting impact in your life. It's just something that you have, that you play with, but it's nothing of substance. If you view God's word lightly, don't be surprised if God's word doesn't change you. When you read God's word, it will reveal your sin and shortcomings, and it would cut you because it convicts you. And then you need to cut those out of your life. That is what it means by applying God's word. The study of God's word. You see your sin. You put off sin from your life. It's more than just knowing God's word, but you must devote your life in applying it to your life. Not only is devotion shown in our study of, God, <coughs> study of God's word, but our devotion to the Lord is also shown in our application of God's word, being sanctified by God's word. But lastly, our devotion to God is shown in our devotion to teaching God's word. Look at the end of verse 10. To Ezra study the law of the Lord, practiced it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. You'll notice that there's these words, statutes and ordinances. Statutes is this, it's a general term meaning right and wrong, what God allows and doesn't allow. This is a general term, the things that God allows and does not allow, how you're supposed to live a holy life. And the second word, ordinances, is the step-by-step in which a person can fulfill God's rule. So Ezra did both. He told the Israelites what they need to do and what they can't do, and he told them how to go about the things that are pleasing to the Lord. Ezra demonstrated his devotion by devoting his life in teaching others. He's able to teach with authority because he knew God's word and he lived it out. So when he spoke, people knew that he was a real deal. Ezra also didn't have some device or some concordance to help him. No, he was able to answer every type of question because he knew God's word. He can look at someone that was in sin and can point out and explain why that is sin and what they need to do to walk in obedience with the Lord again. Someone can question him about the Bible. He knew where to go and knew how to answer it. He knew how to teach it to those that were in sin. When I was in L.A. one time in seminary, uh, I have a lot of car problems, and I'm thankful for the people in our church that can fix cars and fix my car in particular. But when I was in L.A., I didn't have that. I had to look for my own little person that could fix my car. It was, I don't know how I found this one place, but they were known as like the masters of Priuses. They like know how to fix all kinds of Priuses. And uh, when I, when I, uh, someone, I don't know, someone recommended me, I went there, and then it was pretty crazy, because when you get there, you can see, it's like there's a garage, and every part of the Prius is like, is like stripped apart. It's like, it's like an elephant grave, and you used to see like the insides of the Prius is like, is like gutted, and you see like the engine, all these engines here, all these different uh, steering wheels and different parts of the car, just scattered all over. So I thought going in there, I was like, okay, that's great. This place is going to fix my car. I, I, I know uh, because they look at all those details. And it was, it was crazy because there was also Uber drivers there. They're like, yeah, they, you know, all, I guess Uber drivers drive, like to drive Priuses. And they're like, yeah, I, I, I brought both of my Priuses here. So I felt assured that this place could fix my car. My car was acting really weird. It was every time when it went to 25 miles an hour, it would make this knocking sound. Every time it hit 25 miles, you hear this knocking sound. So I was like, okay, well, these people should know what they're doing. Because after all, that's in their little, under their names, like they're like master of Priuses. 
And uh, so I brought him in. I brought my car in. I told him what was going on. They're like, okay, leave it here for a few hours and we'll get it done. So I did. I left my car there and I walked across the street and just did some work. Five hours later, I came back and he told me what was wrong. Like, oh, there's something wrong with the engine. So we just fixed it and we're good to go. So I paid him and then I was like, great. So I left. And when I got on the freeway, five miles, nothing, 10, 15, 20, 25. And then you hear that knocking again. And I was like, what in the world? I spent five hours and a whole bunch of money for this. But I didn't turn back. I just got home. I called them. I was like, hey, the, the, the sound is still there. The noise is still there. And they said, oh, what? What's going on? We'll bring it in tomorrow. I was like, okay. So then I brought it in again tomorrow, the next day. And they looked at it. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'll be, we'll, just, we'll check your car. And we'll fix it in a few hours. And then I did the same thing, went away, studied. And when I came back, they're like, oh, it's good to go. And like, so I was like, what was wrong with it? And they're like, oh, your, your license plate had this little frame on it that made the noise. I was like, okay, that's cool. To the, till this day, I actually still don't have that frame anymore. They, they took it away, and they, I don't know what they did with it. Maybe they hung it with all the other stuff. So I thought, okay, it's great. We're good. We're, I can finally you know, go home with this fixed car. And again, when I got on the freeway, it happened again. This time, I was like, okay, this is, I'm going back. So I went back, and I told him, hey, it's, it's happening again. The guy was like, what? He didn't believe me. So he got in the car with me, and we went together. And he heard the noise, and he made me drive for like 20 minutes, and he's just like, figure out what's going on, like, where's this noise coming from? And I suggested, maybe it's something in my steering wheel. And he looked at me like, what do you know? I was like, and then, lo and behold, there actually was something wrong with my steering wheel. There was something loose about it, and they had to just tighten it, which made me wonder, what did they do to my engine the first time before? <laughs> you know, it makes sense why a person who doesn't know much about the Prius or cars to not know what was going on. But for a business that claims to be that they're experts at this, they should know what's wrong with my Prius, right? At least they'll have a general idea, right? You agree, they should, for people who claim to be the master of Prius, they should generally know what is wrong with my car. You know, if I have to flip this question on you, what about you when it comes to the Christian life? If someone came up to ask you about the Trinity, would you be able to answer it? Would you generally know where to go in the Bible? to answer this question? If someone came up to you and asked you about why do you believe in homosexuality the way that you do, and why do you believe in marriage the way that you do, would you be able to have a, a general idea of where to go in the scriptures? You know, the reason why we're going through this series of why we believe is because we want to equip you to answer these types of questions. Because at some point, if you're discipling a young Christian or you're trying to evangelize to a non-Christian, that you have to answer these questions. It will, it will come up. It will come up. And if, there's really, there's just two types of relationships that you have. If you're pouring out into someone who is a young believer, that's called discipleship. And if you're sharing the gospel and explaining these things to a non-Christian, that's called evangelism. And, that's a two ty- and these are the two types of relationships you must have. In your life, you're either teaching at least one of these, if not both. If you're not doing this, then you're wasting your life and wasting what you know about God. Ezra was someone who had to govern the Israelites with God's word. He had to know the law of Moses. He knew what and how to teach people and how they are to live holy lives before the Lord. They can look at any situation, know exactly how to respond with God's words. And I believe that is the same for the Christian. Christians should be able to answer any type of question with God's word. And if you don't know it, you need to learn it. And if, you, and if you learned it before but forgot, you have to relearn it. You have to keep learning. You need to remind yourself. Devote yourself to studying, living, and then teaching God's word. 
Don't give up just because it's hard. If you look at this book, if you look at the life of Ezra, when he gets to Nehemiah chapter 8, from Ezra 7 to Nehemiah 8, it's about like a 50-year period. Ezra was speaking to the entire nation of Israel, and everyone was broken. They were convicted over their sin because Ezra knew God's word, and he was clear in terms of teaching. And not only that, when he, when he was speaking in Nehemiah 8, there were also scribes that were out there explaining God's word. He spent years, from Ezra 7 to Nehemiah 8, he spent this 50 years or so training up the scribe, teaching them God's word, teaching them how to memorize it, how to think critically about how to apply God's word in their life. Ezra spent years doing this. This is a model of discipleship that began all the way back in the Old Testament. You know, the last few weeks in our church, we've gone through this is the vision of SFBC, and I think sometimes when we think about the vision of, of any ministry, uh, we try to figure out the succinct statement and all of that. But I'm just going to be real. Every ministry has the same goal. Every ministry, any faithful Bible teaching church has the same vision. And that is that people study God's word, know God's word, then live it out and then teach it to someone else. If you were here in high school, that's exactly what happened. If you move on to Blueprint or Gig, that's exactly what they do. Every ministry, it can be summed up in this verse. Because every ministry is the same. Every ministry hopes that people know God's word, live out God's word, and then find someone else to teach it. Now let me ask you, does, this, does these three characteristics describe you? Are you committed, committed to discipling others with what you know? Discipleship is basically teaching what you know about God's work to somebody else. Again, you cannot give away something that you don't have. You study and you apply it, and then you teach others. And as you grow in Christ-likeness, your knowledge of God's word grows, and your discipling with others grow as well, because your reputation is marked by godliness. And I think even in our church, and especially in our day, we think about structure, that we need to figure out the structure in order for church to grow. No, Ezra did not have such a structure. He was in a place where it was filled with losers, You know, people, all the Israelites at the time, they were still struggling with worshiping other gods. Ezra did not think, oh, what are the the church strategies to grow? No, he just knew God's word and taught it faithfully. It was a lifetime thing. He committed himself to his whole life. Ministry is your entire life. It's not something that you do for five years, 10 years, or 20 years. It's something that you do until Christ returns or when he calls you home. And it takes time. It takes time to study. It takes time to live it out. And it takes, time, it takes time to disciple other people. Now that we've seen all three, you must understand that all these characteristics has to be done in order. It has to be in this order. You have to study, live, and then teach. In order to be faithful to God, you must do all of these things in order. You must consume God's word then conform to God's word and then communicate God's word to others. You must be taught by God's word, then be transformed by God's word, and then teach God's word. You cannot expect to grow in Christ-likeness if you do one-third of it or two-thirds of this. It must be all three and all three in this order. But what happens if you choose to do some in, in, in a different order? Let's say, for example, if you choose not to study, but you live out something and you decide to teach that, well, this is where we get those people that are legalistic, right? Legalistic people don't really draw principle from Scripture. They have their own preferences and, and discipline in their own life. They live that out, and they teach other people their own lifestyle. 
Ever knows that all those people that are legalistic cannot back things up with Scripture? It's because they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And if you are like this, then you're no different than the Israelites during the time of the judges who did what was right in their own eyes. And in, in, in essence, when people that are legalistic, they're not telling you to obey God or worship God. They want you to actually worship them. This is why cults are always worshiping a particular leader. But as Christians, we understand that we need to first study God's word before we apply and then teach it. What about if you study God's word and don't apply it to your life, but teach God's word? Well, I've mentioned before, then you become a hypocrite. Sadly, these scribes that Ezra trained up generations from this point would become the Pharisees. They would become those, those Pharisees and scribes. They knew God's word in their mind, but not in their hearts, in their hands, or in their feet. Jesus told them in Matthew 22, he told his followers that you should listen to what the Pharisees had to say, but don't do what the Pharisees are doing. Don't, don't copy their lifestyle, but copy what they're saying to you. They, these Pharisees cannot take the speck out of another person's eye because they had a log in their own eye. But back it up to this time in Ezra 7, they had no hindrances. Ezra was able to preach and teach without any stumbling block to others because he lived out God's word faithfully. He had no log in his eye, so he can point out the log and the speck in other people's eye. Again, you can't expect people to take God seriously if you don't take God seriously. At the same time, the inverse is also true. If you take God's word seriously, it gives you more credibility when you tell others to take God's word seriously. What about if you study God's word and you apply it but you don't teach it? Then your knowledge is not complete. You're essentially disobeying God. God commanded the Old Testament people to pass on what they know to future generations. We find this in Deuteronomy 6. And if you look back at a few, verse, few verses, you'll notice that genealogy, right? We talk about the genealogy. If you look at this list, it's significant because each of these people here were at one point a high priest. These were people that knew God's word, and they taught it. They taught it to their son, and then that person taught it to their son, all the way down to Ezra. Ezra was the recipient of faithful discipleship, and now he's teaching a whole school of scribes. These were hundreds of people. He was faithful in that way. These people, again, this list is not random. These are, it's just, this will make us realize about what faithful discipleship looks like. These are famous high priests, by the way. It's like, you know, when we look at the, the British royal people, like all that family tree, if, you set, if, if that was in paper and written down, people would know what that is. Same with the time of Ezra. People, when they read that list, they knew that Ezra had fame because of the, line, the lineage that he was part of. And in the same way, in the New Testament, when it talks about the Great Commission, right, discipleship was something in the Old Testament and in the New in the New Testament, the Great Commission tells us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them what he's commanded. You can't be devoted to the Lord if you're hoarding God's word for yourself. To borrow the New Testament language, you cannot, you cannot hide the light. Don't put it under a, a, little, a little basket. You must be someone that teaches it as well. I've mentioned that in your life there's two types of relation to non-believers and believers, but there's also another type in that you should be poured into and you should be pouring out into other people. You should have someone that's older in the faith pouring into your life and someone that's younger in the faith that you're pouring into. If you are a person that's younger in the faith, you look for someone that's more mature, someone who's been in the faith longer and ask them to teach you. It doesn't have to be 
You know, it, it could be anything. Just ask them, hey, I want to learn how you study God's word. Be humble enough to ask those questions. Now, if you're older in the faith, I'm not saying, oh, you look around, see all the younger people or the high schools that are coming up and say, ha I am older in the faith, therefore I need to disciple you. No, that's, that's too presumptuous and, and, and prideful of you. For those who are mature in the faith, just continue pursuing Christ your, by yourself. Continue seeking the Lord, continue working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And as you grow in Christ-likeness, your reputation will fall, and people that are drawn to Christ will be drawn to you because you are drawn to Christ. You understand that you need to be someone that's devoted to the Lord. Don't worry about what other people are going through. Be faithful in your own walk, and the Lord will draw people to you because they have an affection for the Lord. They want to model your life. A person that is devoted to God will be poured into, and he'll be pouring out because they, we ultimately want Christ to be made known. And you want others to do the same. My hope for tonight through looking at this little short passage of the life of Ezra, is that you will become an expert in God's word. That you're an expert not, in stu- not just in studying, not just in applying, but also in teaching. All three. Don't be someone that is expert in anything else except God's word. If you want to be known as someone that's devoted to God, ask yourself this question. Are you devoted in studying, living, and then teaching God's word? How you answer that question will reveal to yourself if you truly are devoted to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this privilege and just examples that you give in Scripture. Lord, we know that we fall short in so many ways, but yet you give grace after grace <laughs> for us to study your word, to, to apply it, and to teach it. Lord, we ask you that you can illuminate our minds, open our mind to your word as we read your word on a daily basis, that it's not just some trivial task that we do, but it's, it's an opportunity for us to dive deep and know you more. And Lord, allow us to be sanctified by your word. Cause us to be people that live as light in the world. May we mortify sin. May we be grossed out by sin. May we do whatever it takes for us to cut off sin from our life. Lord, we, we want to be people that are disciple uh, and disciple makers. Make us, allow us to be humble, <laughs> to seek older people in the faith and, and to, to, to pour out things that you taught them into our life. And at the same time, Lord, may we be good stewards of what you've taught us so that we can entrust this to future generations as well. Lord, be with us now. May we be like Ezra, someone that's just faithful and devoted and be known by our devotion to you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.